You were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of human beings. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning and welcome to Church of the Cross. My name is Peter. I'm one of the priests here. It is so good to be with you this morning. Set in 1946, the children's story, The Hockey Sweater, is a classic Canadian tale. Has anyone heard of this story? I thought as much. I thought as much. In this story, as a Canadian, I know this story. I love this story. But in it, there is a 10-year-old French-Canadian boy named Roche Carrier. And he, alongside his crew of friends, are diehard Montreal Canadian fans. The Montreal Canadiens are the preeminent hockey team historically. They have won the most championships, and they are the only team that represents the province of Quebec. They are more like a national religion than a sports team. And Hockey Sweater tells the story of Roche and his friends' devotion. They play every day pond hockey. They imagine themselves to be the Montreal Canadiens playing out their successes. One day, however, disaster occurs when Roche's mother replaces his worn and old but beloved red and blue Canadiens jersey with the blue and white jersey of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Montreal's most hated rival. If there's one thing I want you to learn, it's to hate the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> As a Canadian from Vancouver, like, it's just in me. But Rosh's mother doesn't understand. In her ignorance of middle school boy-child social dynamics, she has made this horrible mistake for Rosh, the humiliation is complete. The, the sense of shame is total. His loss of social capital is difficult to quantify. He does not even want to play. The story concludes. You can read it and follow, find out more. But the story concludes with Rosh fervently at prayer in church, calling for a hundred million moths to devour the cause and symbol of his shame. Today, we are in the middle of this brief three-week series looking at the, the middle chapters of 1 Corinthians. In these chapters, 6, 7, and 8, we get a picture of some of what it means to live in light of the gospel. What it looks like for us to live as though Jesus is Lord, is who he says he was, as though his life, his death, his Resurrection and ascension are defining reality for us. And last week, as we looked at 1 Corinthians 6, I made reference to the reality of status anxiety in the community to which Paul was writing, the city of Corinth. People there were jockeying for position, seeking to secure their social location, their economic position, their standing, their grouping, being in. That, of course, is not an entirely ancient phenomenon. Philosopher, contemporary philosopher Alain de Botton has written a book called Social Anxiety. We're familiar with the reality, or so, pardon me, status anxiety. We are familiar with the reality of status anxiety in the world of middle school boys, like in the hockey sweater, where having the right gear can make all the difference. But also in the reality of our own lives as grown adults, the question of status is 
more quietly, constantly being asked or answered, often in more subtle but no less real ways. Sociologist Rob Henderson recently coined the term in 2019, the term luxury beliefs, referring to those beliefs that are expressed as status symbols, demonstrating that the holder belongs to an upper elite class. Henderson argues that where we once demonstrated our good taste and status through luxury goods, diamond rings, and designer clothes, we now demonstrate status through holding the right views. He primarily points to social and political views, like religion being irrational or monogamy being outdated and oppressive thing. But perhaps most comedically, he points to enjoying the musical Hamilton as an expression of a luxury belief. He suggests that when it first came out, it communicated this sense of belonging. And then as it became more of a mass phenomenon, its utility as a status marker was diminished. Whatever specific beliefs they might be, I suspect we immediately intuit and understand this category. Those perspectives that expressed, communicate that we're well-read and educated. Not like those Philistines, we appreciate the finer things, we see things clearly. Those views that demonstrate we're with the good guys, we're on the right side of history, securing our status through the display of luxury beliefs. Simply one more way we can make ourselves secure in an insecure world. What an exhausting way that we live. It is tiring to be jockeying for position. It's wearying to be grasping after status, to be profoundly uncertain of our place in the world. Thanks be to God that he has something better for us. In Christ, in the gospel, so much better. This morning, as we, we look at this next section in 1 Corinthians 7 and consider what it means to live free of such status anxiety in light of Jesus and the gospel, I'd like to organize our thinking around two headings. First, the value of a price tag, and second, the persistence of the call. And then we'll conclude with a couple of implications. Before we jump in, let me pause and pray for us. Gracious and almighty God, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be holy and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence among us. Minister to us, draw us to yourself into living more and more in line with the truth, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. So first, the value of a price tag. If I were to pick one summary statement of the entire message of the gospel, the good news, it would be the phrase that we find in verse 23. You were bought at a price. This expression, repeated in fact from our reading last week, captures both the, the incredible generosity, God's grace for us, as well as our tremendous poverty, our need, like few other phrases. And the apostle Paul uses this phrase to communicate the reality of Christ's redeeming work on our behalf. You and I have owed, incurred a great debt, a debt that each of us has been unable to repay. In Jesus and his atoning debt, 
death, our debt of unrighteousness, of living unjustly, not living as we ought, has been paid. And we have been redeemed from our creditors, from the powers of sin, death, and hell, purchased by Christ's redeeming blood shed on the cross. C.S. Lewis, famously in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, depicts the death of Aslan on the stone table in these terms, a sacrifice in exchange for the life of Edmund, through which the forces of darkness are then defeated. And what this idea, of course, communicates is that Edmund is of value. That in spite of his past, in spite of his rebellion, his disdain, he is to Aslan worthy of the cost. Willingly, the cost is paid. And then out of that, Edmund's life is transformed. It's redeemed. How could it be otherwise? What drives so much of our status anxiety is the unspoken conviction that we are not of value. And with that in question, we we seek out a means of securing, of communicating to ourselves and to others that we do, in fact, hold value. See what I can do. See what I've made of myself. See to whom I belong. In spite, in the face of the shame and questions we have about ourselves, in many ways, conditioned by our culture, we try to bluff our way through these questions of value. Remember, you're enough. You've got this. If you try your best, work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. These well-meaning half-truths do not actually address the suspicions we have about ourselves because they ignore our weakness, our lack, our poverty, our fragile wills and divided hearts. Truly, they do not address the things we've done and left undone. But the statement, you were bought at a price, attends to these truths, accounts for the weak and sinful aspects of our lives. And it communicates, what's more, that those realities, those truths, are not determinative of our value. Your value has been spoken for by God in Christ at the cross. He looked upon you with all your past, with all your lack, with all your failure, and thought, worth the price. You and I are not enough, but we are of great value to him who is enough. And his grace is sufficient. His desire to, is to make us secure, to make us participants in him, members of his household. So striving and seeking to secure status outside of what God has done for us is wholly unnecessary. You don't have to do it. You don't have to jockey for position. And in fact, it is wholly unproductive, counterproductive. The idea of not becoming slaves, the second part of verse 23 that Paul writes there, gets at this counterproductive reality. This is not how we might immediately understand this when we see the term bondservant or slave, as some translations put it. But in the Roman culture in which this letter was originally written, selling oneself into slavery to a wealthy and honored patron, to an established wealthy household, could in fact be the path toward higher social status and upward mobility, toward a better place in life. And Paul is saying here, don't do that. Why? 
because such a desperate act communicates a feeling of insecurity that is not true for those who are in Christ. Using the language of verse 21, it suggests a level of of being troubled by the questions of status and social location. It suggests the focus is there in the wrong place. Where am I at in the pecking order? Paul here is not inviting judgment on people who are in desperate economic situations. Rather, he is challenging the church to not be consumed by questions of status and to, in our life together, operate on a different value system. And in our own lives in the world, operate with that same system. Do not be troubled by such things. Don't be consumed by such things. Questions of your position, questions of comparison, because that represents a form of slavery from which you have been delivered. Studies have shown that most people incorrectly believe that getting into a higher economic bracket will make them happier. What studies actually suggest is true is that leveling up economically, actually getting into another bracket, can give you a temporary bump, a contact high. People generally feel better for a little while because it seems that as you enter a new bracket, in relation to your previous peers, you are now doing better. You are winning in the comparison game. But the thing about entering that new bracket is that feeling goes away. It diminishes because you get a whole new level of peers. And you begin to spend time with people of a higher class. And you begin to feel that you are wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey around Montreal Canadian fans. Like you don't belong. Like you don't measure up. Like there's shame. That is a kind of slavery. And the truth of the gospel is this liberating word. You've been bought with a price. Do not let your heart be troubled. In the words of Jesus, don't labor and spin seeking after these other things. Because in him, your your status is secure. As we consider how that might then play out in our lives, let's move to the second heading, the persistence of the call. Three times in our passage today, Paul repeats this statement regarding people remaining in the situation they were in when God called them. It's there in verses 17, 20, and 24. There is a little bit of variation in the original language, but they are all expressing this similar idea. And the situations that are specifically being referred to in our reading are that of circumcised and uncircumcised, Jew, Gentile, that of being a slave or a freed person. And in the verses just earlier in chapter 7, Paul refers also to the pair male and female. He's talking about sexual morality and marriage. These three pairs, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free, male or female, seem to be capturing the situations that Paul has in mind with this repeated phrase. And when it comes to the question of slavery, bond servants, and freedom, this phrase, I suspect for us, is a little bit troubling. Historically, adherence to slave-holding religion used statements like this and others about slaves obeying their masters to justify oppression, injustice. And that's the context in which we probably hear these phrases. So a couple of clarifying things. 
As I've already indicated, there are distinctions between what took place in Greek and Roman culture and what took place in the United States in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. That has to be taken into account. Second, there are also real considerations of what was actually possible for Christians in the time who were themselves bondservants that conditions Paul's response here. He is, uh, as one writer put it, pushing the envelope as far as he can in what he writes here. More substantively, this passage has to be read, interpreted, as every passage of Scripture does in the context of the whole canon of the Bible, the whole story of Scripture. This is what abolitionists like Lemuel Haynes argued for when they read this passage as teaching that spiritual freedom is most important, most integral, but that does not mean physical freedom is insignificant or unnecessary. And the clear implications they drew, he and others, was that the doctrine of the image of God being shared among all people speaks to the injustice of the practice of slavery. Most germane for, for my points today, though, is reading this passage in comparison with our gospel passage. It suggests that a narrow application is maybe not what Paul has in mind here. If Paul were to remain in the situation he was in when he was called to be a Christian, he would have stayed this rabbi, this teacher, the vocation, the place, the social location he was in. In the same way, in Mark 1, the disciples, when Jesus calls them, are fishermen. They have a particular location, a particular situation. But what does Mark say? But that they immediately left that situation. Part of God's call, Jesus' call in their lives, meant moving from their situation. All of that suggests that Paul may not have meant for this repeated statement to be read in a narrowly binding way. What then does it mean? As you will no doubt have noticed, each of the repeated phrases references God's call. This language of call refers in the Apostle Paul's writings to the saving call of Jesus, the call to salvation. Come, follow me, repent and be baptized. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Put your trust in me. That is the call. And what Paul appears to be saying to the Corinthians, to us, is that the call to Jesus, the call of Jesus to redemption and life in him persists in every status, in every circumstance. That is, you do not have to become a Jew in order to receive that call. You don't have to make yourself Greek. You don't have to be in a specific economic class. You do not have to be male. You do not have to be married. That is, the call of God is irrevocable and indiscriminate. For Paul's time, for us today, that is radical. That is radical good news. Because whatever circumstance we find ourselves in currently, in whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in the future, Paul is saying the call of God persists. Your status as one whom God has called to himself endures in seasons of employment and unemployment. If you are married or unmarried, Whatever your level of education, whatever your level of success, your career trajectory, such things, he is saying, have no spiritual bearing. 
Such things do not impede or promote your spiritual status. What is determinative is God's gracious call to you and your reception of that call. You don't graduate into that call, nor do you age out of it. It is for the people of God. One of the weird elements of this challenging passage is this notion, perhaps, of uncircumcision. If you're anything like me, when you first read that phrase, you're like, I think of circumcision as a pretty irreversible procedure. Interestingly enough, there are references from the time of Paul's writings to the way that Jewish people, we are not going to go into details, there are no photos coming or anything like that. (laughs) Interesting. There were ways that Jewish people who desired to participate in Greek athletics, nude, you had to participate in the naked, the way that Jews could undergo a surgical procedure to cover over the fact of their circumcision as a way of hiding their cultural identity, this shameful thing, circumcision regarded as this barbaric disfigurement by Greek society. That is the term that Paul uses in verse 18. That's translated uncircumcision. It's kind of like this ancient form of cosmetic surgery. That Paul explicitly calls for the followers of Jesus to not pursue this path suggests things about our cultural identities, that we need not be ashamed, and that God's call indiscriminately comes to each of us in our particular ethnic, cultural, social location. It also might connect, relate to our approach to cosmetic surgery. It's unlikely that we would do so to hide our cultural identity, at least in the United States. That's not true around the world. But it may be that we do so to hide our age in a, in a cultural moment that values, that prioritizes youth, in which youthfulness correlates to status. A Vatican statement from the Catholic Church in 2015 once referred provocatively to cosmetic surgery as producing a burqa of the flesh referring to the oppressive way that our culture invites people, especially women, but not exclusively, to be so troubled by the natural processes of aging, its effects on the body, that they take drastic measures. The prevalence of such dramatic anti-aging interventions in our society is a clear indication that status anxiety pertaining to our physical appearance is something for us to consider in light of the gospel, is perhaps reflective of the ways that we as a society have submitted ourselves to notions of worth and value that are anti-gospel. The truth of the matter is that God's call persists through your life across circumstances, such that we can be with Paul content in every circumstance, such that with the writer of Psalm 84, we can declare, We are happy to serve as a doorkeeper in the presence of our God. The call persists and is determinative, indiscriminate, not revoked. As we close, what are the implications of this? There are are three things I want to emphasize. First, faithfulness is possible. If God's call persists in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, then we remain his in whatever high or low we are experiencing. 
And it, therefore, is possible to live faithfully right where we are, whatever the situation. Dallas Willard, in his exhortation toward living a life of grace, emphasized taking your life as it is. You're every day walking around life as it is now. You do not need to attain to a certain level of financial freedom or get that next degree. You don't need to be a particular age or in a particular job. Your life now, with all its constraints, its limitations, its frustrations, can be reflective of the gospel, can be lived out for the glory of God. One writer commenting on this passage put it this way, bondage or circumstances need not constrain a person into a grudging and resentful stance. But the circumstances that constrain us can be used as an opportunity for pleasing the Lord as one's true master. The gospel is lived through earthly constraints, not in spite of them. So much of the faithfulness of the black church in the United States bears witness to this. The grace of God lived out in the face of remarkable injustice, remarkable constraint and limitation. But perhaps less dramatically too, this truth can be lived out in our lives today. How might the circumstances, the limitations that you are facing provide an opportunity to live the gospel and to glorify Jesus? Faithfulness is possible right where you are. The second implication is live free. I am acutely aware of how it is possible to hear this sermon, to read this section of Paul as this hectoring, oppressive word, a word of challenge and exhortation to stoically rise above your circumstances by willpower. Don't let it get you down. And perhaps there is an element of of challenge, of conviction that the Spirit has for us. But what is clear in Paul's letter, what I want to make clear in this sermon, is that it is God's call that has primacy. His declaration of value, of dignity, and freedom over you, that is definitive. Whatever you do or don't do, whatever your faithfulness and failures, the word that he has spoken over you, The word of value, the word of dignity, the word of love persists. And you, baptized in him, are his freed person. Bought at a price. There is nothing more to be done. So in the name of Jesus, would oppressive anxiety be silenced and stilled among us? Set us at liberty, good Lord to live the the refreshing, the free life to which you have called us. So these implications, faithfulness is possible and live free. Finally, a third implication, remain. New Hampshire has live free or die, is that what it is? It was live free and remain. That's what we're gonna go go with. (laughs) Paul's exhortation here in 1 Corinthians 7 is to remain in God's call. Trust that the call persists in every circumstance with him. That's how some translations render verse 24, remain in him. And that language clearly resonates with Jesus' own call in John 15. Abide in me, remain in me, take up residence in me. 
That is, remain in my love. Remain in the truth of all I've done for you. Remain in my sovereign care over your life, my lordship, my provision, my compassion. Make holding fast to those truths, inhabiting them, your life's project. More than any other endeavor, make remaining the thrust of your existence. Our Old Testament reading begins with God's declared intention. How gladly I would treat you like my children, give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance. That is God's heart for you. Refreshing, healing, freedom. And to live in line with the gospel, with Jesus as Lord, is to enter in and remain in that life of freedom. So this morning, come in, remain in his gracious presence. Come to the one who has called you, the one who has bought you at a price. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.